Father, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would uh, move me out of the way, Father, and that your words would ring true and they would resonate with your people this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can grab a seat, and if you've got a Bible, you can open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning as we open a new series, a little three-week mini-series on the, the qualifications and role of elders in the life of the local church. Now, whenever some of you saw perhaps the Facebook message go out, or you saw the Instagram posts go out, or you got the email this week, and you're maybe scratching your head a little bit wondering why we would spend three weeks talking about the qualifications and role of elders in the life of the local church, I want to go ahead and address that question before we even jump into the text this morning, and here's why. Because some of you in this room, God may call to eldership one day. Some of you in this room right now, God may be calling you to eldership in the life of the local church. And so it's vitally important that you begin to wrap your mind around what scripture requires and what that role looks like. What it entails and involves and what God is expecting of those men who would step into that capacity, into that office, and begin to shepherd Jesus' people with a heart like Jesus. It's important that you understand that if that's what your aspirations are, if that's what your desires are, if you sense God awakening that within you, then it's important that you submit that to what God's word has to say about it. Now, for some of you, that's why it's important that you're here this morning. That's why you need to hear what God's word has to say about eldership in the life of his church. But for some of you, you have no aspirations to eldership. Some of you, you really don't long for that. You have no interest in that. Some of you would not be qualified for that. But you need to wrap your mind around what kind of leadership it is that God wants to position in the life of the local church that you should follow and what kind of leadership you shouldn't. Listen, in the wake of all kinds of scandals in the life of churches across our nation, even within the last 18 months, well, a megachurch in Seattle, a whole network of church planting movement has come to a screeching halt because there was a leader in place there that was unqualified and went unchallenged for a really long time. And there was spiritual bullying that was taking place in that context where people were silenced for speaking their convictions. And whenever you removed that linchpin, everything else around it was like a, a house of cards that came toppling to the ground. Or you look even more recently at a mega church in Florida whose pastor has resigned as a result of sexual infidelity which made the headlines and the Facebook feeds of most of the folks probably in this room if you're on Facebook and you've seen some of that as it's unfolded. Now those are two very prominent pastors and very prominent churches and very large churches with very large followings. But that kind of scandal takes place in churches of all shapes, sizes, and colors across our nation. And so it's important whether or not you ever aspire to serve in the office of elder in the life of the local church that you understand the kind of leadership that you should come in line and follow and the kind of leadership you should go you sniff a little bit and go, it doesn't smell right, I'm going to go somewhere else. And so it's important that we wrap our minds around these things. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be opening up what Paul has to say to Timothy and Titus and what Peter has to say to the churches that he's writing to in 1 Peter chapter 5 about the qualifications for elders, the people who would serve in those capacities, but also what their role looks like and what that entails. 
And so if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen for you as we read it together. We want to jump right in this morning by taking a look at the character of the kind of men that God would raise up into the eldership and the life of the local church, but also the character of the work that they are to be engaged in. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy and he says this. And Paul's writing, remember this little context, he's writing into a church that has been embattled with false teaching. There's all kinds of winds of doctrine that are stirring in Ephesus. And Paul's writing into the heart of that, calling these elders and giving qualifications for them so that they could lead the church in a very uncertain day when there's all kinds of winds of teaching blowing around them. And listen to what he says. In verse 1 he says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Now, we're not going to get through that. I wish we could, but we're not going to get through that whole text this morning. But what we are going to get through is the first half of that text this morning. And we're going to get through the first half of that text by taking a look at who these people were who were to serve as overseers or elders or pastors, which, by the way, that language throughout the New Testament of overseer or elder or pastor are interchangeable. They're not talking about different offices. They're talking about the same office in the life of the local church. And so, who are these men and what do they do? So we want to take a look at this morning from this text. And we want to kind of unpack this definition of elders over the course of the time that we have together this morning. Elders in the local church are spiritually qualified men who are called by God to work together to lead and feed the local church. Elders are spiritually qualified men who are called by God to work together to lead and feed the local church. Now, where, why do we say elders are spiritually qualified men? Men, look. if you look in the text that we just read together in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's assumed or implied in, the, in verse 2 when Paul says this, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. He's talking to men here. In fact, you go back, you push rewind on this, and you go back into the New Testament, and you're going to see that whenever Jesus shows up on the scene, he chooses 12 men as his apostles and instills authority in them to tend for and care for his church as it would continue to grow. And then those apostles would gather to themselves other men that they discipled and trained and then sent out as well to serve the local church. Who gathered for themselves other men that they discipled and trained and sent out to serve in the local church. So you see this ongoing reproductive process whereby men are being installed in the positions of eldership or pastors or as overseers in the life of Jesus' church. You go back even further in that into the Old Testament and you see the pattern even continues there where the prophets that God raises up are men who are speaking His word to His people. The priests who are installed into office are men who are administering to those who were gathered there for worship. The kings that rose to power in Israel were men whom God appointed to govern his people in the Old Testament. 
And whenever God creates from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, whenever he creates, he creates the man and forms him out of the dust of the ground. And then he takes this, the rib bone of the man and he forms the woman as a helper for the man. There is no denigration of value between men and women in the life of the local church, but there is a differentiation of roles. And we believe that God has set boundaries within the life of the local church. Women may serve in all kinds of other capacities. They may serve as deacons. They may serve as teachers. They may serve in a variety of hospitality ministries. They may serve in all kinds of areas. But we believe that God has set boundaries with regards to the eldership in the life of the local church. And they are to be spiritually qualified men. So they're spiritually qualified men who are called by God to work together to lead and feed the local church. Now, elders, whenever you hear that term, most of us think about people who are really, really old, right? We think about people who, right, they're kind of maybe sitting in the recliner most of the day uh, and, and, and kind of their feet up, maybe watching a little bit of sports or daytime television on CNN or Fox News. We think of people who are old, but elders in the life of the local church, in the early church even, weren't necessarily men who were old, but men who were mature. And listen, while, while customarily age typically plays into maturity, it's not necessarily play into maturity. Because Paul writes to Timothy, and again, further on in this text that we just read, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he says to Timothy, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So Paul's writing to Timothy, who must have been a younger man. Most commentators and scholars would say he was probably somewhere in his 20s or 30s when he's receiving this letter from the Apostle Paul. But the impression, the assumption that we walk away with is that he's shepherding, pastoring, or overseeing men who perhaps are twice his age. So it wasn't like, okay, who's the oldest guy here and we're going to put him in office? As an elder, no, it's who is the most mature guy here. And we're going to install him as an elder in the life of the local church. Because there are some 20 and 30-somethings who take the Bible more seriously, they give more sacrificially, they serve more faithfully than 40, 50, and 60-somethings. And so age is not the trump card with regards to being installed into the office of overseer or elder, but maturity is. What evidences does someone give with regards to where they are in submitting to Jesus' lordship? That's what we want to look for. Are they living in obedience to him regardless of how old they are? Now listen, age typically means you've seen a little bit of life, right? There are some of you in the room who are in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and you've seen much more life than I've ever dreamed of seeing at this point. But if given a choice... Given a choice between men who have seen life and men who are walking in submission and obedience to Jesus, I'm going to choose the latter always before the former. So they're spiritually qualified men, not necessarily old men, who are engaged in what Paul calls, look in the text, in the, in verse, in the text in verse 1, Paul calls it a noble task that they're engaged in. Now, other ways, other translations might render it a little bit differently. Some of them might say a beautiful work or a good work that they put their hands to. Now, what this means for us is at least this, right? That the office of overseer or of elder in the life of the local church isn't just someone who sits in a boardroom around a conference table making decisions about direction and mission and vision. 
but they are men who roll up their sleeves and they get their hands dirty in the work of tending to, shepherding, and caring for Jesus' church. So they're not just a board. In fact, I don't even like that terminology, an elder board. But they're, they're an elder team whose hands are, in, are dirty in the lives of people and caring for their needs and overseeing them. So it's work. It's not like a, a position of privilege, but it's a position of service where you not say, okay, I'm up here. Now everybody has to come underneath me. It's no, I'm up here. Now I've got to come underneath everyone else and serve them and make sure their needs are being, being met and addressed and they're being cared for in the way they should be cared for. They're being taught in the way that they should be taught. That doctrine is being defined and defended in the way that it should be defined and defended. That those who are walking through very hard, challenging, difficult seasons of life, maybe through the midst of a divorce or a separation or perhaps the loss of a loved one, the death of a friend, the rebellion of a son or a daughter, that the elders, the shepherds in the life of the church are rolling up their sleeves and they're involved in those people's lives in such a way that they know that they are cared for and loved regardless of all the kinds of craziness that might be unfolding in their life during that season. Paul says that is a beautiful work, a noble task to define and defend doctrine, to teach and govern people and to shepherd and guide them. Not by being removed from them, but by being in their midst and among them. So Paul says it's a noble work that these men who are spiritually qualified, not necessarily old, are engaged in. But notice what else he says. He says this eldering is also a team sport. It's a team sport. Jeremy Renner in his book called Church Elders, he writes about this. And about how across the pages of the New Testament, what you see, you don't typically see an individual elder being singled out. What you see is a plurality of elders in the life of Jesus' church. So there are elders in, elders in multiple elders in Jesus' church. In fact, here in the text in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, If any one of you, he didn't say if any one person among you desires this, but if any one of you, speaking to broadly to anyone within the Ephesian congregation, if any one of you desires or aspires to the office of eldership, so he's not singling out one person here or one person there, but he has in mind this plurality of leaders, and this is supported by the rest of the New Testament when, like in Philippians 1.1, Paul addresses all the saints with the overseers, plural, and deacons. Or in 1 Peter 5.1, when Peter exhorts the elders, not the elder among the churches to which he is writing. Or in Acts 11.30, when we see the church in Antioch took up a collection for the church in Judea and sent it by the hands of Barnabas and Saul to the elders, plural. In Acts 14.23-24, you see Paul and Barnabas traveling to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and appointing elders, plural, in all the churches. In Acts 15.2, Paul and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem to discuss a dispute over circumcision being necessary for salvation, and they discuss it with the apostles and elders, plural. In Acts 15.22, the apostles and the elders choose men to go back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. In Acts 20.17-18, when Paul's preparing to return to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, knowing that he's probably going there to die. He sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church. 
In James 5.14, James says, if any one of you is sick, you should what? Call the elders, plural. In 1 Timothy 4.14, Paul admonishes Timothy, don't neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. In Titus 1, Paul, Paul talks about appointing elders in every town. And in 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says that the elders or overseers who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. Paul almost exclusively, and Luke in the book of Acts almost exclusively, when they write about elders, they write about them plural with the assumption that there's multiple men who are shouldering this work together. It's a team sport. It's not golf, okay, where you're out there by yourself in a bag of clubs trying to figure out what club you take out to make this shot. But it's more like football or baseball or basketball where there are multiple men who are surrounding you, who are pursuing the same vision, the same direction, with the same goals, and they're shouldering the work together. What this means is this. It means that in Jesus' church, there should never be one man who is shouldering this burden in isolation. But there should be multiple men whose shoulders are broad and weighty and are able to handle some of that weight with him. So whenever I got here, a little over 15 months ago, I approached our elders currently serving at that time, which we had two others at that time, And I said to them, I said to them, listen, the New Testament teaches this plurality of elders in the life of Jesus' church. And so here's what I want you to understand, is that when we talk about an org chart here, okay, we're not talking about an org chart where there's Jesus, the lead pastor, then the elders. We're talking about an org chart where there is Jesus and there are the elders, Right? And so whenever it comes down to discussions about direction and about vision and about mission and about allocation of resources and how we're going to get our hands involved in people's lives, I get one vote. <laughs> I don't have three votes. I don't have seven votes. I have one vote. Because God has raised up a, uh, and put in place an arrangement where there would be multiple men sharing this burden together. So churches that dot the landscape of our culture who have a senior pastor and then a body of deacons and the senior pastor is kind of the guy that everyone defers to and though no one really says it, everybody knows he's got seven votes whenever it comes to voting on anything. That is not biblical. There should be a a plurality of elders who are working together as a team to shoulder the weight of shepherding Jesus' people. I told them whenever I arrived, I said, listen, the only difference between you and I is the fact that the church affords me a salary to do the eldering work, the shepherding work, 40, 50, sometimes 60 hours a week. That's the only difference between you and I. And so when we stand before God one day and there's a team of elders who, who are, are around the throne of God that He's going to hold us collectively responsible for, how we have guided and taught and defined and defended and cared for the church. It's not going to be Shannon's going to be up there before Jesus and then Kevin and David and Paul and whoever else can kind of be back here. Right? they got a second tier level seat on the bus responsibility. No, it's we're going to be standing shoulder to shoulder together giving an answer and an account for how we shepherded this church that God has placed us as overseers in. And listen, some of you before who thought, man, I might like to sign up for that. Maybe now you're going, I might reconsider. 
It's a terrifying thing and a very humbling thing to think that you would stand before Jesus one day and say, I want to hear him say, you did well caring for my bride. You did well. It's a team sport. We work at it together. In addition, when Paul begins to now lay out the qualifications for what these men need, listen to what he says first. Listen to what he says first. He says, elders must possess a divine urging. They must have a sense of a holy aspiration. This spirit-born desire in their hearts for this work. Listen to what he says. If any one of you aspires to the office of overseer, aspires, that word literally means a craving or an eager longing or an appetite. If you've got an appetite for this work, if you've got an appetite for this office, Paul says, it's the first requirement you've got to have. You've got to, elders have to want to be elders. They have to want to give their lives to shepherding Jesus' people. They have to want to say no to certain things so they can say yes to what it would require to care for and nurture and tend this flock that God has put them in. Now listen, we know what it's like to have an appetite for something, right? Most of us in this room know what it's like to have an appetite for a good meal. In fact, some of you are looking forward to that in about 20 minutes, Lord willing. You're looking forward to that, right? Your, your stomach begins to growl and your appetite begins to rise and you know what it's like to sink your teeth into a delicious meal or you know what it's like to have an appetite or a craving or an eager longing, some of you, to engage in your hobby, like to go out and craft, ladies. That's very stereotypical. Or to go out and fish and hunt, men, right? That's stereotypical as well. And so you get this craving or this longing, this desire that exists within your soul for a hobby that you might engage in or food that you might partake of. And listen, Paul says, if you want to serve as an elder, a pastor, an overseer in Jesus' church, there's got to be this internal divine urging, this aspiration that begins to rise in your heart when you hear someone talk about the kind of work, the noble task of teaching and guarding and guiding and defending and defining and caring. All of a sudden, your heart begins to stir and it begins to bubble a little bit because you say, I want that, I want that. And listen, that aspiration that might be present in some of your lives and hearts right now, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that you stand up and raise your hand and you jump up and down saying, pick me, pick me, pick me, right? In fact, if somebody did, I'd probably shy away from them. (laughs) It doesn't necessarily have to be something that is verbally articulated, but when somebody sits down across the table from you and they say, I've observed in your life these markers... And I, I just have a, I have a question. Have you ever thought about what it would look like for you to serve as an elder or a pastor, a shepherd, an overseer in Jesus' church? And if there is something that stirs in your heart in that moment, that's the first prerequisite. Here's why. Because if you got elders who are serving as pastors and shepherds in Jesus' church because someone twisted their arm and there was no one else available... They are not, they are not going to be willing to lay down their lives for the sheep. Some of us may come from very kind of traditional, more traditional Southern Baptist type settings where you had a nomination committee, right? And that nomination committee, every year, it was their job, right? They had to go out and find people to do stuff, 
All right, so they went out and they, you know, like, they got to find somebody to serve in children's in these positions and somebody in youth in these positions, somebody on the finance team, and somebody on the building and grounds committee, somebody on the personnel committee, somebody on all these different committees. And so there was a nomination committee. And by the end of that process, they're going to people like begging them, would you please, right, just let us put your name on a ballot so somebody, we can have enough people to make the ballot that our bylaws call for. And that's not what we need as elders. That's not what Jesus' church needs as elders. As a men who would be tasked with defining and defending, guarding and guiding, teaching and caring. Many men who, whenever we say, this is the work that Jesus gives to his under-shepherds, they go, sign me up for that. Because when I think about giving my life to anything else, At the end of my life, I don't want to stand in my trophy room with all these medals from the athletic contest that I participated in or all these mounts on the wall from these fish that I've caught or these animals that I've killed. At the end of my life, I want to look back and not necessarily see a trophy case full of mounts and medals. I want to look back and see men that I've invested my life in and I've given my life to, regardless of how many mounts are on the wall or medals are in a case. That's what we need Serving Jesus, church. Men with a divine urging. Who want, who want to give their lives to his bride. Not only must they possess this divine urging, but listen to what else they've got to possess. This is where we're going to spend the majority of the rest of our time this morning. They've got to possess not perfections of character, but patterns of of character, of stable character. Now Paul goes on here to list 10, 10 areas in which there's going to be patterns of character in these men's lives. And listen, you're never going to find, those of you who have played golf before, right, when you step up on the tee box and you hold the club in your hand and you get over the ball and you kind of look down the fairway and you go to bring that club back and you go to swing it forward, right, there is not a man alive even the best ones on the PGA Tour who can stand over that ball and stripe it right down the heart of the fairway every time. Right, at times you got the ball kind of going off into the rough over here or maybe in the woods over here or in the water over here or the sand over here. Not a man alive can stand up in front of that ball and stripe it down the fairway every time. But listen, there are some men who whenever they get up to the tee box, you got people in the houses that line the fairway, who are bringing their kids and pets inside and rolling down the armor plating on their windows because they know as soon as that club comes forward, man, that ball is going to duck hook right for our pool. And so clear the pool, clear the patio, put down the plating on the windows because it's coming, right? And listen, those are not the kind of men that Jesus needs serving in his church as elders, Whenever they show up on the tee box and people feel like they've got to hide their pets and kids and roll down the shades on their windows to protect them because they don't know what's going to happen next. But Paul says what Jesus' church needs in elders and overseers are men who have patterns of character, not perfections, because elders should be the lead repenters in the life of the church. Listen, there have been... Several occasions over the course of the last 15 months where we've gathered together as elders and I've said, guys, I need you to pray for me because there's like a thermonuclear war going on in my soul right now with the flesh that I know I have to turn from. 
And I know that those, I know that my brothers have been faithful to pray. Elders should be the lead repenters who have patterns of character, not perfections, but in what areas? Listen to what Paul says. He says the elder must be above reproach. In other words, he's somebody who doesn't open himself up to accusation or criticism. He must be someone whom even when charges are brought against him, they don't stick because there's not enough evidence to convict. You might go, yeah, I saw that one time, but it was an isolated instance and I've never seen it again in his life. He's not wheels off. He hadn't gone off the rails But Paul says he's got to be above reproach. In other words, if somebody were to bring charges against him, you go, no, not that guy. Not that guy. Here are the, I'm going to address nine of these areas quickly this morning. All right, we're going to save the tenth one for next week. But nine of these areas quickly this morning, above reproach, what are those patterns of character that have to be present in his life? One, he's got to be the husband of one wife. He's got to be faithful to his bride. And I don't think Paul means here, if, if he had desired to clearly prohibit men who had been divorced from serving in this capacity, he had the language in the Greek text to do so. I don't think that's what he means here. I think what he means here is that individuals who have a consistent patterns of behavior in this man's life that wouldn't open him up to charges of sexual impropriety, indecency, or promiscuity. And if they did come, they wouldn't stick because his mind and his heart and his eyes aren't wandering. Because if Paul had meant to say he can't be divorced or he's got to be married, Paul would have thereby excluded himself as an elder in the church because Paul was a single man. And he upheld the value of singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, if I could have my way, I wish you all would be like me. You could give all of your energy and attention to loving and serving Jesus' church. But some of you are married. And if you're married, it's no sin, he says in 1 Corinthians 7. So if Paul would have meant to say he's got to be married... Right? He would have been excluding himself. And if Paul had meant to say that he cannot have ever in his life been divorced, then he would be creating a, a stipulation or a qualification that Jesus even says is appropriate in some instances when there has been adultery that has been committed or whenever an unbelieving spouse has abandoned a believing spouse. Paul says that as well in 1 Corinthians 7. So I don't think he's saying this guy can never have been divorced somewhere in his past. So here we would take it on a case-by-case issue. As we consider the character of elders, are they above reproach? Have they commit adultery somewhere back here? Maybe pre-conversion or just post-conversion. But has there been patterns and, and of, of character that have existed in their lives over the course of the last 5, 10, 15 years, whereby when somebody looks at them and when they bring charges against them of sexual impropriety, they would go, no, not that guy. He didn't have a wandering eye, a wandering mind, or a wandering heart. Paul says, it's got to be above reproach. For those of you, for those of you who find within yourself an aspiration to the office of elder, I ask you a question. Do you find in yourself the pattern of a wandering heart or mind or a flirtatious spirit so that in the event that someone were to bring charges of impropriety or promiscuity against you, everyone else around you would look at that and go say, yep, I saw that five miles away. Or is there a pattern of character there? The husband and one wife. Second thing that he says, you've got to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded, essentially it meant this, that you weren't irrational or intoxicated with misdirected and unbridled passions, or you weren't inebriated by the values of the culture. Listen, at, growing up in high school, I can remember guys who would go out and party, and they would party all night long at the end of all these little country roads out in the middle of nowhere, right? And any time somebody would say, hold my beer and watch this, right, that never ended well for them, 
okay? Because more than likely they were intoxicated or they were inebriated. They had a little too much to drink. And Paul says that there's a possibility, it's a feasibility that your mind and your heart can be intoxicated by the things of the world. It can be in love with the things of the world. It can be inebriated by the things and the values of our culture. And Paul says typically when that happens, you tend to make irrational decisions. And you are governed more by your passions, your fleshly passions. And Paul says these men have to be sober minded so they won't lead others to act in very worldly ways in the church toward a very worldly direction for those of you who find within yourself an aspiration to the office of elder is there an intoxication that you have with the culture in which we live are you always wanting to bend to them and have uh, acceptance from them because their acceptance and their approval is the highest highest in your mind are you sober-minded? Third, are you self-controlled? To be self-controlled meant that you weren't unstable or impulsive. So when you're self-controlled, there's a measured decision-making process whereby you weigh out options through prayer and through reason and through consultation of Scripture to make a sensible, spirit-led, and biblically informed decision. Listen, there have been men in our church previously who sat down across the table from me and they said, you know what, man, I'm just, I'm just super impulsive. I just make decisions on the spur of the moment. Make decisions about where to move and where to live and where to attend church on the spur of the moment. I'm just a very impulsive person. Listen, if somebody shares that with me, that would be a red flag for me to install them in the office of elder because if we sit down at the table prayerfully, biblically, and rationally trying to consider the direction God's moving us as a church, I don't want someone there who's going to make impulsive decisions from day to day. And one day they're all in on this, and the next day they're all in on that, and the next day they're all in on the third option. We want somebody who's going to weigh out the options and think about where it is that God is directing and how it is that God is leading. I also don't want somebody who's going to be impulsive trying to shepherd and care for other people. Because today they may feel like meeting with you, but tomorrow they may not, and they're just going to act on their impulse. Are you self-controlled? For those of you who aspire to the office of elders, there are a pattern of impulsive decision-making that leads to instability in your life and family. In other words, your wife and kids, they look around and go, man, this is a really unstable environment because all that dude does is, is make decisions based on his passions and emotions from day to day. It's just impulsive. If there's an impulsive pattern in your life, you don't need to be serving Jesus' church as an elder, at least not yet. In addition, Paul says, not only you have to be husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, but respectable, Paul says. To be respectable meant that you weren't just well-mannered, right? That's typically what we think of when we think about our kids being respectable, right? We teach them not to eat with their hands, not to chew with their mouth open, um, you know, not to, you know, flush the, to flush the toilet whenever they're done. And for those of you who have ladies in the house, to put the seat down, okay? All those kinds of things are well-mannered. They mind their manners really well. But for Paul, it wasn't just being well-mannered, but your life was well-ordered. In other words, your priorities were in the right place. You had the right priorities and they were in line. There weren't patterns of excess in your life, but patterns of moderation. For those of you who find within yourself an aspiration to this office, is your life well-ordered? Not just are you a nice guy that everyone, you'll shake everybody's hand and speak real kindly to them to their face, but is your life well-ordered? Are your priorities in line? Or are there patterns of excess where you're giving an inordinate amount of time to things that really don't matter in this life? Are you investing your energy and effort into things that are going to have eternal return? 
or your priorities in line. Fifth, they gotta be hospitable. This term originally meant that you were to open up your life and home potentially to traveling missionaries or evangelists who were moving throughout the Roman Empire. So they didn't have necessarily Holiday Inn Express back then, right? And so lots of the Christians would open their homes and they would welcome these itinerant evangelists or missionaries or pastors into their homes and show them um, hospitality. But in our, our culture, here's what I think the parallel to that is is that men who are hospitable, their lives are open to others. In other words, I'm willing not just to guard my time, but to give my time in such a way that I make myself available to people. So I'm not always thinking about, well, when when am I going to have time to do what I want to do? But men who are saying, I want to give my time away. I want to give my energy away. I want to give these blocks of conversation away to other people. Not to guard it, but to give it. See, for those of you who have aspirations toward eldership, are you available and willing to engage those with needs, with your time, with your resources, with your effort? Do you welcome people into your life readily? Are you open and accessible when people are in need? Or do you go, well, that's somebody, that's somebody else can take care of that. Sixth, Paul says, able to teach. We're going to say that for next week. Seventh, He says, not a drunkard, not a drunkard. Now, had Paul wanted to say that this man could never have alcohol touch his lips and he's got to take a Nazarite vow in order to serve as an elder in the life of the local church, he could have said that. He had the language to say it, but he doesn't say that. He didn't say that in order for someone to serve as a pastor or an elder or an overseer in the church that they can never touch alcohol. That's not what he says. He says they can't be a drunkard. In other words, they can't be someone who's not only mentally or heart level intoxicated, but someone who is continually physically intoxicated as well. Who is drinking to the point of inebriation, intoxication to where if they got pulled over by the governing authorities of our nation, of our state, county, or local authorities, and they had to take a breathalyzer test, that they're going to pop on that thing and be brought to jail and arrested for a DWI. They're not a drunkard. Listen, having a drink or two on occasion doesn't disqualify a man, but if his accountability group, right, is consists of Jose Cuervo and Jack Daniels and Jim Beam and Johnny Walker, right, he probably doesn't need to be serving as an elder in the life of Jesus' church. He's not a drunkard. For those of you who have those aspirations to the office of elder, are you dependent upon substances to make it through a day or a week? Where do you turn first under pressure? Do you turn to the Bible or do you turn to a bottle? Eighth, Paul says, not violent but gentle. This qualification, I think, strikes at the heart of those who have really quick fuses. Oh, and man, this is such an issue for men in our culture who have a quick fuse, right? So here's why. Here's why they can't be violent, but they've got to be gentle in the way they respond to other people. Here's why. Because the office of eldership, right? Men who have a 1.5 amp fuse, when those 50 amps of current begin to run through that because someone that you were close to says, I'm out. We're going to find another church. Or someone that you were close to says, you're not preaching the Bible, as the, as, you're not preaching the Bible faithfully. You're not preaching the Bible um, with a gospel at the center. When somebody comes to bring criticism and charges, and whenever they begin to uh, critique in very um, 
non-gracious ways. Man, there's about 50 amps that surges through that office of elder. And if you've got a 1.5 amp fuse, what's going to happen is in an instant that thing's going to blow. And you're going to respond in ways that you will regret. And you're going to respond in ways that's going to not instill confidence in the life of those who are part of the congregation, but make them wonder, what if I have a concern? What if I have an issue? How are they going to respond to me? Paul says they're not violent, but they're gentle. There's a lot of forbearance, patience, consideration, and flexibility when approaching people or being approached by people. These are men who don't use their position to bully or bludgeon others, even whenever they have concerns or critiques. If you aspire to that office, how, how, how much is your fuse rated for? Because some of you blow in an instant with family. Some of you blow in an instant with friends. Some of you might have blown in an instant with life group members in the past. When he men, his fuses are rated well over 30 amps serving in this office in Jesus' church. Ninth, they're not quarrelsome. They're not quarrelsome. Many like to pick fights and go around looking for quarrels have no place in the office of overseer or of elder. And yet, in other places, and we'll look at this more next week, in other places we're told that, uh, that there's a responsibility that we have to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, and we'll pr- press this a little bit more next week, but we need men who are serving in this office that aren't quarrelsome. They're not going around looking to pick fights with everyone doctrinally. Okay, over, over open-handed issues, closed-handed issues, we'll fight for, we'll defend those things to the death. We'll die on those hills. Open-handed issues, we're not going to be quarrelsome about those things. And we need men. Jesus needs men in his church who are serving not in ways that are creating drama, but helping to diffuse that drama because they're not going around creating quarrels. We need men who are trained to defend the truths of the gospel as boxers, not as brawlers. So when somebody steps into the ring, they're ready for the fight when it's taken to them, but they're not necessarily going around looking to pick fights with somebody in the back of the alley. If you aspire to that office, are you willing to learn, even from those who disagree with you on some doctrinal issues, do you pick fights with everyone around you who disagrees with you on open-handed issues, secondary issues, non-primary issues? Tenth, tenth, and we're almost done. Tenth, not a lover of money. Not a lover of money. In Paul's context and in ours, this meant that monetary greed was not the motivation for his ministry. And listen, this is incredibly vital in the life of an elder or an overseer or a pastor because the congregation needs to trust that the money that they generously, sacrificially, and faithfully give is being appropriated correctly. It's being appropriated correctly. In addition, the congregation needs to trust that the staff and the elders are not trying to fleece the sheep. In other words, we're not trying to fatten ourselves on lamb shanks, <laughs> right? And shear every sheep that comes through the door so that we can build a bigger stockpile of wool. They need to be able to trust that whenever an elder looks into the eyes of a person who walks through these doors, that they see a soul and not a dollar sign. So you need men that whose motivation for their ministry is not monetarily, it's not monetarily motivated. 
You need somebody when they sit down, sit down across the table from you and they're, you're trying to, they're trying to care for your soul, that the, you know that, the only, that, that they're caring for your soul because they love you and they're moving towards you in grace and compassion, not because you're a big giver. And they've been digging through financial records. And so they give preferential treatment to those who are giving more and deferential treatment to those who are giving less. You need to be able to trust that. You need to be able to trust that whenever we stand before you and we ask for generous contributions to move in the direction that we feel like God is leading our church, and we ask for X amount of dollars like we did last Sunday night, and we, ask, we, need, we told you we were trying to raise $60,000 in the next two months, and some of you have already begun to give towards that. And I thank you for that. But when I stand up and say, we're trying to raise 60 grand in the next two to three months in order to be able to move toward where we feel like God has directed our hearts to establish a permanent location, you need to be able to trust that we're listening to God and I'm not just trying to buy a new truck. Man, this is so close to me. I came from a church a couple of churches ago. <laughs> that I served in Louisiana, that had all kinds of issues with trust around the, 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 the leadership and the congregation because the previous pastor there had been embezzling funds from the congregation. And I, I've seen how that erodes any hope of being able to engage in gospel ministry because there's never any trust. And that's why my salary here will always be in the hands of the elders and the finance team. And I will, I will push back from the table any time that conversation arises. Because my intention is never to ask for a raise. Because I never want to open myself up to this accusation of being a lover of money. When I came here 15 months ago, I came here and agreed to work for a particular salary. That the church would afford me to serve as a vocational elder. And if I work on that particular salary for the next 30 years of my life, I will continue to work for that salary. Because I want to be above reproach. Now you might look at this list of qualities and you go, where does that come from, right? <laughs> These are like supernatural kinds of men. And it is. It is. But not of their own effort. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul calls the Ephesian elders together, and I'll close with this, I want you to hear what he says to them. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 28, Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul says, I got a concern for this church because Jesus gave his life for it. And I want you to love it and to give attention to it and to care for it because the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now the Holy Spirit doesn't raise up men and install them in office before he begins the sanctifying work of producing these patterns of character in their life. It's not that these guys kind of came from some special stock who would serve as elders in the church, right? Kind of like a dog, right? You go to a, a good breeder in order to get a great retriever. No, that's not how it works. They didn't come from some kind of special stock or breeding program, but these are men who over the course of time the Holy Spirit has been doing a sanctifying work in to bring them to a place where they are exhibiting these patterns of character in their life. 
Not perfections, but patterns. And that only comes as they continue to look toward Christ and submit themselves to Him. So eldering is a team sport, and you've got to have a divine urging for it. There's got to be patterns of character in your life. You can't just say, yeah, I want to do that, and your life be a train wreck. And we go, oh, yeah, come on. We'll put you in office. Now, if there's an aspiration there, then let us, let us disciple you. Let us work with you. Let us mentor you to raise up other men. Because I told our elders when I arrived that we need to do two things. One, we need to pray for God to bring us these kinds of men <laughs> who can serve our church as overseers and pastors and shepherds. But we also need to begin to do the hard work of rolling up our sleeves and beginning to invest in those kinds of men. And that's by God's grace is what we've been doing over the course of the last 15 months. And so anytime we stand somebody before you and say we believe that God, God has, has, has led us to appoint this man as an elder in our church, it has not, it's not being done without much prayer, discipleship, conversations. And usually, typically the on-ramp for that's about 9 to 12 months. So I hope over the next two weeks that we're able to come to a point where we can see, we can see what God requires and what their role is. So that those of us who may feel those longings and aspirations, we can begin to submit those to Scripture and godly counsel. And for those of us who do not have those aspirations, we can say, this is the kind of leadership we should follow. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness and your goodness. We thank you for your word, God, that so clearly articulates these truths. And Father, I pray that you help us to submit ourselves to those things, those truths, and that, God, that we would live as a people under your leadership, ultimately, seeking your guidance, seeking your direction, for your church, because this is not my church, this is not our elders' church, this is your church, and God may it always be. I pray for the men in the room who have those aspirations and longings to that office. God, I pray that they would begin to submit those to Scripture, and God, I pray that they would help us to seek them out as, el- as our current elders, and I pray, God, that you would help them to seek us out as well. And for those who have no aspirations towards that or would not be qualified for it, God, I pray that you'd help them to see whether or not this is the kind of leadership that exists here at Redeemer Church that they're willing to say, yes, I want to follow that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.